And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this week, I'm very excited because you know how much I love Halloween. And this time of year, I always try to find at least one topic that kind of explores something supernatural, something inexplicable, uh, something that really challenges your view of reality. And I think I found a universal topic in exorcisms. You know, this is really a shared concept throughout religions, throughout cultures, throughout the ages. Almost every single group of people who have ever gathered together have some idea, concept, and ritual protocol uh, on how to deal with evil spirits and how they affect the living. And I think what I love about it is to believe in exorcisms. You have to believe in a lot of other concepts because if you believe that there's someone who can drive demons out, you have to believe that demons exist. You have to believe that the devil exists. You have to believe that not only do they exist, but they can affect reality. They can affect your reality. Uh, They can possess you. And without an exorcist, without an exorcism, you could be dealing with this forever. And that, I think, is a very scary and terrifying concept for a lot of people. So to, to talk about this, I've got one of the best exorcists in the world, and also has probably the best exorcism name, that is Archbishop Ron File Enright, a name that strikes fear into demons all throughout the universe. And he is a founder of a group called the Order of Exorcists, which has people and trained people throughout the world who can do this, you know, kind of on demand, really. Uh, it's just a, a fantastic group, and I'm really excited to get into this. So first of all, Archbishop, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I just want to start off by telling you just a little bit about where I'm coming from, my starting place from an ideological standpoint. I come from a place, you know, I've seen a lot of the other things that you've done. A lot of people come from a kind of a place of faith or belief or paranormal. And while I love all those things, I'm I'm interested in these phenomenon just from I'm I'm an open-minded skeptic. Let's say that, right? So I grew up Catholic. Uh, my grandparents were very Catholic, and I, I have to say, I just as a person, I'm skeptical of exorcisms. But I believe that there are very strange things in this world. Uh, you know, and I've only kind of glimpsed into some of these true things. I've never really glimpsed into evil, like I'm sure you probably have. But um, but that's kind of just where I'm coming from. And so. Um, that, anyway, that's that's just that's my my beginning point, and and I've always found this to be just kind of a fascinating topic because obviously, I mean the, if nothing else, the interest in exorcism is exploding across the world, uh, which is kind of I, I assume why your group formed. I mean, you, you're the leader of a group called the Order of the Exorcist. Is lead an appropriate term? <laughs> and is that the uh, is that the, I know you're retired, but I know you got to be heavily involved. That's a pretty cool name for you know. Yeah, I'm the founder. We founded back in 1982, probably before you were born. Wow. I'm guessing. <laughs> no comment. 
<laughs> sometime, uh, sometime, you know, when the dinosaurs kind of died out and then exorcisms started happening, you see. Uh, but as a result, uh, yeah, we've been we've been going for quite a long time. I've been retired for just a few years now, but I still uh, mentor quite a few bishops uh, nationwide in regards to their ministry of exorcism. So how would you, I, I guess, let's start off, you know, let's start off from right on the ground floor, right? How would you define an exorcism? Like, what is the, what does that mean? And, and what, what do you need in order to say, I need to perform an exorcism? Well, we need a victim who has required or requested our presence to perform a ritual for the sole purpose of casting out a demon or some type of demonic uh, behavior or some kind of demons that may be uh, in the individual. So what an exorcism is basically is, is it's a ritual. Okay. So it's a ritual that specifically is designed to expel a demonic entity. I'm guessing from what I'm reading, either from a person, kind of like from a noun, like a fascinating noun, a person, place, or a thing, correct? Yeah, pretty much. What we do before we actually decide to perform an exorcism is we first must look at the individual and really find out everything we can about the individual. That means from their past uh, what their physical health is uh, is like. We request a psychological evaluation because it's very important that uh, that what we're doing um, is actually uh, caused by some type of uh, demonic issue and not some psychosis. Because a lot of psychosis will uh, can mimic okay um, symptoms of possession, and there's a very fine line there. The first thing we do, uh, getting back to the the actual assessment. Okay, is that we look at three major areas in a person. We look at the mental changes in the person. The second thing is the physical changes that are affecting the person. And then, of course, the outward manifestations. Now, the, the, the mental changes, of course, I'm referring to uh, things that are quite obvious. Um, could be anything from uh, isolation, um, um, personality changes, um, um, major things that uh, that go on with the person that's that's just not um, part of their character, and and so we have a questionnaire that we go through. We have sixty questions, and so we go through each question in the first section, which is the mental changes in the affected person. The second section is the physical changes affecting the person. And this would mean that um, it is possible for a person to have uh, show signs of some type of demonic possession, such as um, uh, long periods without blinking, or speaking languages they've never been taught, or speaking with, a, with an accent, or, or even their eyes changing color. Um, of course, the obvious things, of course, would be levitation. That is, the person would be actually lifted from the uh, from the ground, you know, defying all laws of gravity, <laughs> and 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 things of this nature. Of course, all this falls under our section two, which is the physical changes affecting the person, and then we have the outward manifestations, which is section three. Now, this would involve um, possible demonic infestation. And uh, when this occurs, things in the household will start um, behaving in a very strange manner, such as objects will be moving around by themselves, 
or um, object will be disappearing and then found later, maybe at another location. Or hearing knocking or banging or pounding throughout the house and or flying things, okay, books flying around, dishes, pretty dangerous, uh, scratches, uh, sounds like uh, on the walls, and um, terrible smells throughout the house. That's a, another interesting one. Also, spontaneous fires. This is very dangerous, but... These things actually have taken place many of times. Of course, animals becoming uh, spooked for no reason. Maybe they they put a lot of attention on a certain portion of the of the house or a room, and then stare at it for you know for several hours. Glass breaking when there's actually no glass breaking, or sudden temperature changes going up and down, and uh, and that's pretty chilling in itself. Hearing voices. And this is of course. This is after we've uh, already ruled out uh, the first section in regards to mental illness. Um, then, of course, physical, the actual physical marks on the individual, bite marks, or sexual abuse, of course. Oh, now, so one of the things, so you kind of go through this list, which I think is interesting. Now, so the first thing you rule out is any kind of mental uh, disability or mental, um, whether their mental abilities are impaired or compromised in any way. I like that because I imagine, you know, I watched a couple documentaries on, on exorcism, which were really interesting. A lot of them were in Italy and in Rome, which is very Catholic, uh, kind of more like tends to be a little more superstitious. So I, I kind of have to listen to some of these things with a little bit more of a skeptical ear. But one of the things I find really interesting is the in this one documentary called Deliver Us about uh, Italian exorcism. Uh, they were saying how some of the people are actually attention seekers or have Munchausen syndrome. And and these are these can, you know, really Munchausen syndrome is basically where they where people who are normal in every way want people to think that they're sick. And I, I would imagine for people like me who hear about exorcisms, this is the thing. Anyone who's skeptical of exorcisms would count everybody into the psychologically disturbed list. Right. So what what I think is interesting is what you're saying is when you go through this list and you assess somebody, there are people who come out of that mental list completely clear of any mental psychosis, correct? Right. Well, you know, this is why we, we ask that we get a copy of a psychological report. Perhaps there may be a psych evaluation done either by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Um, in our organization, we have three psychiatrists. So when the assessment reports are sent to my attention, I forward the psychological portion to our psychiatrist. They give me their interpretations and then they make some recommendations and they send it back to me. And at that point, I have to really study and use my discernment of, uh, of uh, my almost 40 years in this, in this ministry uh, in regards to the manifestations that are taking place as to whether or not they are valid uh, demonic issues or not. As you said, there are many, many things that we have to rule out. There are people that are seeking attention. There are people that would love the attention to have an organization such as ours to actually be involved in their scenario, in their um, delusion. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the dangerous things about this whole ministry is that if we should happen to make a mistake, and let's say um, we decide to go forward and perform an exorcism. And the psychiatrists on our staff tell us that they give us the green light, that there's no mental 
uh, psychosis present, okay, based on the information that they've received in their report. Um, so, you know, I take that and then I take that into consideration and then I make a decision. The, the absolute worst thing that could ever happen is if we do an exorcism on a person that has no demon, uh, demonic issues. When that happens, that could push the individual further into their psychosis and sometimes it could lead them to suicide. Wow. So, so you know, this is a, a this is a very serious serious thing. This is a it's not like you know think what you might see in the movies. Right, <laughs> though, yeah. though it can be kind of scary. Uh, let me say that that our organization is international. We have members, clergy who are exorcists and investigators. These are lead investigators. A lot of them are technical people, and they're in 24 countries around the world. We are also in 18, maybe 19 U.S. states. I think it's 19 now. Um, so we're like, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty worldwide. We're not completely. I believe there's 190 countries in the world and we're only in 24. But at least we're in 24 and we're making it. We like to think we're making a difference. Since my retirement, all of our bishops who are exorcists, they have their own jurisdiction, which means that they have to make the call, the final call as to whether or not the person or their or their one of their parishioners um, who may make the uh, make the request, they have to make the decision as to whether or not they should go through with the actual ritual. So it would be all it would all fall under the jurisdictional bishop. Um, and as I said, we have them in a number of states and in a number of countries and they would make that decision what is the percentage of people who come to you who you deem to be actually possessed or have some level of demonic possession roughly a rough percentage okay if we go by the numbers i'm going to go with uh, let's make the numbers really big okay so okay. so this way uh, i can give you a large number <laughs> okay let's say a hundred thousand people have made a request this month to have a demonic investigation done and to make an evaluation to see whether or not the individual is truly possessed. And then after all the 100,000 reports, they come to me and I look at all of them with my superpowers. Okay, <laughs> look at Wait, now hold on. Are these real numbers? Do you really get 100,000 100, requests? I am, I, am, I am basically giving you an example as to the percentage. Okay. 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 Now, you got 100,000, okay, a month that are coming in. Okay. Now, in reality, this could be worldwide, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying a hundred thousand. Okay. okay. It's hypothetical. We're talking hypothetical numbers. I just want, I want listeners to hear that we're talking hypothetical numbers, just trying to get a percentage. Very, yeah. very hypothetical. Okay. okay. Now we go into the percentages. 89 to 90% of the individuals that contact us have some form of psychosis or some other problem other than uh, spiritual or demonic. Then you have about another 8%, and the 8% may be, truly be, uh, have a possession which is referred to as a demonic oppression. And, uh, and this is um, widely viewed as, uh, as the demonic having access to the person's mind by invitation. And as a result, um, the demonic could place plant a negative thought in an individual and the individual would have no idea but think that it's their regular normal thought process and think it would be their idea. 
So then you have the serial killers that fall in this category, you know. And then you have all, all the other terrible, terrible people that fall in our society who are rapists, uh, who, who have no regards for life, who are, and so on and so on. All of these people have, and this is like the the 8% I'm talking about, which is demonic oppression, all of them have a 100% demonic issues going on in their lives. And as a result, their outward performance in interacting in society will show that, whether it be serial killers or uh, bank robbers who are, or people who are hurting other people physically, um, destroying lives and so on and so on. Okay, and then you have, after the 8%, then you have the 2%. The 2%, are people who are suffering. They're suffering physically and mentally. They're suffering in such a way that they have no control over what's happening in their body. These are people that are demonstrating supernatural things that would never be explained by any other means other than being a demonic possession. And these are the people that do literally levitate, have strength, incredible strength. They could walk through a wall if they like. They could change their physical form and from a, a human being in, in, into a, some kind of reptile or even a um, change their gender. I mean, unbelievable. These people, the, the texture of the skin is so cold and gray, um, they look like aliens actually. You, these are people that are that would despise anyone who walks into the room, despises any person uh, who falls in the category of God's creation. So as a result, the battle, and I'm sure everyone's heard the battle of good versus evil, truly, truly does exist. And Satan, as within my belief system, and millions of others, maybe billions of others, we acknowledge that there is an evil force in the world. There's a, there has to be. In, in order to have something good in the world, you have to have something that's just the opposite. You have good versus evil. And so that goes on, on a constant daily basis, okay? And you have to have the two to coexist. It's like night and day. You, in order to have day, you have to know what it is when night comes. And then you can identify night. The two have to coexist. <clears throat> so if you believe in good, you have to believe in evil because the two both truly exist. And as a result, this is what we're dealing with. The supernatural hits us almost on a daily basis and the majority of us have no idea that it's there or even if it's, if it's come close to our very existence. And the temptations are there. Being human, we're subject to all of these things. And as a result, if we are curious, the more you know about these, about the subject matter and about the demonic, the more open you become in regards to opening yourself to the possibly uh, the darkness of the demonic. Well, now, now before we get too far, before we get too far along here, because I want to go back to some of these percentages, and, and w I'm happy to finish this thought. But what, what I also want to, what I think is kind of interesting is I, I want to make a, a point here to anyone listening: is you're really coming from a very specific paradigm. You, Archbishop Ronald Enright, 
because what you're saying that this eight percent that are serial killers and rapists, you know, a psychologist would they, they would they would weed those out immediately and say, well, they're either psychopaths or sociopaths or they've got some sort of you know something wrong with the brain chemistry, either the chemicals or the structure um, trauma when they were young, you know. So and uh, every different paradigm is going to explain those differently, right? And so I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of that because I happen to not believe that I don't believe that those are have anything to do with the demonic. What interests me, and I think what what I think is is what's going to interest people is is things that they haven't heard of or things that defy explanation. So this two percent and two percent seems like a very high percentage, but this two percent where things happen, levi- levitation is defying the laws of gravity, right? So any scientifically minded person, if they see something levitate and literally defy the laws of gravity. Th- that's something to think about. People changing color, it, temperatures in the room, any any messing with the physics of the world around them is going to make people stand up and take notice. And so what you're telling me is that happens on a regular basis or that happens w- pretty often or w- how, 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 how regular is that? This activity happens 24-7. Okay, uh, it's – and the demonic is uh, – and for that matter, any spiritual um, entities are operating outside time and space. So they don't wear a watch. They don't look at the time. They don't care if it's day or night. They don't even care what kind of person you are, as long as they could capture your attention and uh, basically um, go into that. You know, we talk about mental illness. You know, I mean, I'm I'm one of those believers. I believe that that chemical imbalance, um, there has to be something um, involved in there where maybe some type of invisible outside force has created that hypothesis. And if that be the case, then who's to say that every person in, in the mental institutions around the world are not possessed or have some type of very heavy uh, demonic oppression going on, and that's possible. And and I am, believe it or not, I am, and I feel exactly the way you do. I am a skeptic. That's why I created this program back in the early '80s. The assessment, the process, I call it. We make sure that we rule everything out, and this also goes for demonic infestation. We rule everything out. We rule. Um, let, let's say, for example, if there's a, a house. And, and there's a, a, a change in temperature and there's certain cold spots, certain hot spots, you know. Well, we have uh, people that are investigators that will walk into a house and they will look at the structure of the house. They will look at the electrical system of the house. They would look at other things that might um, mimic something of a supernatural nature. If it could be explained then it is written up in the assessment report. Um, For example, people that have hallucinations, for example, um, a lot of this can be caused uh, by by black mole that could be in your attic. And and just the particles itself, uh, once you inhale, you could actually, and it could actually bring it to a point where you start hallucinating, where you start actually seeing things. Uh, maybe spirits, maybe um, the walls may start shaking or bleeding or things in this nature. And it could be induced by not spiritual, not not the demonic, but it could actually be induced by the physical surrounding of, of, of the person, the house itself. 
So we inspect the house. We make sure that the house is uh, to par. That is, that all these things are ruled out. And then once we rule those things out, then we look further. We look further uh, in the neighborhood. We look for um, we look for people that might be transmitting uh, maybe a two-way radio or so. And in somewhere their frequency is has jammed up uh, into another frequency, uh, maybe in in the house that we're we're actually uh, investigating. There's so many other things that could that actually happen. So what we do is we rule out everything. We rule out the the, um, the house, we rule out the person in terms of his, um, whether or not he wants attention, whether or not he, he's a loner, whether or not he's, uh, he's seeking, um, you know, uh, some kind of platform to, to announce to the world that he exists and he is a special individual and so on and so on and so on. We have to rule all these things out before we actually make a final assessment. And then that final assessment, as I said, if we have the final assessment and it truly is a case of demonic possession, then the person you are going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person is truly possessed, especially when you see them literally levitating, okay, defying the laws of gravity, as we said, or transforming, that is physically, and, and becoming a different person. The, of course, the, the, the voice, will, of course, will change, but the hair color could change, the eye color can change, um, the skin tone will, will feel really odd. Sometimes there are actual marks uh, that reveal that the person who is, being, who, is, who is actually experiencing the, the symptoms of possession is actually being um, literally torn apart from the inside out. The person who is going through this, um, through the real experience of having a demonic possession, is a person who is suffering, suffering so much. Uh, and as a result, um, it's, it's the worst, the absolute worst time of their life uh, to exist and is to experience all of this. And of course, the family members who are, who are in the household, they, um, they're witnessing this and it's affecting them as well. Okay, and so everyone um, has this... It's a, it's, it's a horrible, horrible feeling, but it leaves an imprint, not only in the mind, but sometimes uh, um, people that are, are most closest can also share some of the things that are actually happening uh, within the environment, which is, again, really scary. And now you've, so you've seen all of these, you know, let's call them things that would defy logic, things, things that would defy physics and science, right? Like those are the things that I kind of want to talk about because those are the things that are interesting. If I'm impressed that you guys have such an exhaustive list of ways to weed people out, you know, if you didn't have something like that, I would be way more skeptical of what you guys do. But when it comes down to who is actually possessed, this 2%, right? That still seems like a high number because out of 100,000 people, that's still 2,000 people. And, and and I don't know that we've ever, I mean, given in the era of YouTube that we have, I know that, you know, in the Catholic Church, there's not a lot of filming of exorcisms. But I've never seen any really compelling evidence that, that, these, that people defy the laws of gravity. How, how often does that happen? How come we haven't seen that? Because that would turn a lot of skeptics into believers. Believe it or not. The majority of our investigators uh, have seen with their own eyes, and most of them were skeptics, uh, total non-believers. And when you see something like this in this magnitude, believe me, you become a believer real fast. One or two things will happen to the individual. He will either um, 
quit <laughs> and run as fast as he can right. and I should run uh, and and hopefully try to forget everything that was that he was exposed to or you have a very dedicated person who is a, a convert if you will and who actually believes this stuff and sees it in regards to um, explaining certain things there's a, a lot of things in this world that we can't explain um, psychokinesis moving things with your mind um, a lot of um, therapists say that uh, especially who are in this field say that uh, that these things can actually explain a lot of things that happen in a quote-unquote haunting where things are moving around especially when children are involved children have the apparently they have uh, their ability is stronger in regards to uh, their imagination and they could actually feel and move things around so it's referred to as psychokinesis it's actually a real thing this has been captured, by the way, um, on um, a video or on real uh, things happening. And um, uh, there's been a number of, um, of paranormal research labs. There was one in Los Angeles. Uh, UCLA used to have a, uh, a paranormal research lab, and they used to do all kinds of interesting experiences, uh, um, interesting case experiences that they have um they had to go through my, my first interview for this show was the guy who started that lab he was the one who they were they were um studying first right so and there's one in duke so there are lots of places who do study this that's for sure exactly exactly and uh, so it's a I, and a lot of them go by the um title as a, a peril um psychologist where they uh, can explain you know how these things are nothing supernatural about it but it all has to do with the natural elements and 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 where and how we live and and all the things that are around us say so everything is connected um so there's a lot of hypothesis in regards to why certain things happen but there are still so many mysteries so how did you kind of i mean exorcism is a pretty big thing right i mean it's it's uh, you know, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of training. How did you, where were you trained to do exorcisms? Because I know that your particular organization is not connected to the Vatican, and the Vatican probably has the most well-known group of exorcists. Is, I think it's the International Association of Exorcists. Um, so how did you get trained, and how did you walk down this path? Okay, my training. Back in the early 70s, I was, uh, me too, I was raised as a Roman Catholic uh, throughout my life. And uh, in the early 70s, I was introduced to the old Roman Catholic Church, which is actually a traditional Roman Catholic Church. And so as a result, um, they introduced me to this ministry, and it was a parish, um, and it was St. Michael's. I um, learned, I went through a four-year, uh, actually, theological training and then from there, I had I was the um, the assistant. I had a mentor. I had three mentors, and they were my bishops. My mentor would take me to various rituals, and I would assist either as the first or second priest. This is after holy orders. Okay, now holy orders is an or it's an ordination into the priesthood. So after that. Uh, then I started going with uh, my various mentors. I had three mentors. And as a result, they um, would take me to various cases. And uh, this is back in the mid-70s. Uh, now we're going to maybe the late 70s. And at this point, more and more people started to uh, 
request um, that a priest be sent to their place of residence because strange things were happening within their family unit. And I'm not talking about just domestic things, domestic problems. I'm talking about things that were totally unexplainable, where a daughter or father or mother or some, some family member, okay, would demonstrate strange behavior to a point where it was frightening to the members of the household and they would call the church and we would send a priest and the priest would interview the families and, and find out, you know, what's going on and they would try to resolve it. Um, this was before the process, before, before I invented the process or created the process back in uh, 81, 82. To be trained, you have to have a mentor and you have to be with them for anywhere for, for from three to six years. It depends as to how quickly uh, you could adapt to what's actually taking place and your understanding and so on and acceptance in regards to what's actually happening. So in my training was four years, okay, and then I had another four years just to be trained to be an exorcist. And so as a result, I was the assistant for four years. Uh, yeah, about four years. As a result, um, after my training, I was appointed as, uh, as the exorcist for the uh, old Roman Catholic Church. Well, I got to ask you this question because I think it's really quintessential to what you do. When was the first time that you saw evil or saw uh, an entity or saw something that made you believe really and truly believe that demonic possession was um, a real phenomenon? Well, the very first time, I wasn't, I wasn't the exorcist, I was an assistant. I was assisting the exorcist, it was my mentor, um, Bishop Griffin. Um, anyway, Bishop Griffin was the, uh, he was a wonderful man. Um, and uh, he took me to a place that was in downtown Los Angeles, and it was a rundown hotel. And um, in the Skid Row hotels, these are these are dwelling places for people that are at the end of their rope. Uh, majority of them are drug addicts. Um, a lot of them may have mental issues. Uh, a lot of problems. A lot of social problems. There's lots of demonic uh, things that also happen within these environments. Um, in this particular case, um, this girl, she was uh, 21 years old, and she was the one who was possessed. Um, so we went into the place and, um, and, uh, this is when I saw for the very first time I heard a scream and I heard the scream from outside the building, outside the hotel. Okay. And I'm talking about downtown Los Angeles. It's a busy street. Okay. And a lot of traffic noise and everything. And all of a sudden this screeching sound comes out from this hotel and it's like, it's like, sh I mean, Literally, the windows are like rattling. It's horrifying. The scream—it's it, not a human scream. I, you know, I know it sounds strange. It's not a human scream. I mean, you know, we have, you know, the, the capacity to scream, okay, uh, only to a certain point and, and to a certain pitch. But this scream was so loud, and so—I mean, it was almost uh, ear-shattering. And at that point, um, I said, okay, here we go. And this was my first time out, by the way. Right, okay. So, wow. So, you know, right out of the box. So, there I am. Okay, so I I, I followed Bishop Griffin, and and, and, uh, and and I don't mind telling you, I was uh, a little nervous. 
And then uh, as they're walking down the hallway, there's a whole bunch of people that are standing around, okay, and they're hearing the sounds too. And they've been hearing the sounds for the past few weeks. And a lot of the tenants already moved because they were horrified as to what was going on. Lots of banging on the walls, lots of banging on the door. The, the, the hotel room was a, a two, it looked like a two person unit. In other words, it had like a, two, a double apartment together. Um, you know, the building is like, you know, almost a century old. It's a very old hotel. Okay, you walk into the hotel, okay, and uh, went to the door, hearing pounding, hearing screaming, and then the screech, screeching sound. Once again, uh, Bishop Griffin opens the door, and the room is filled with people. I mean, wow. all the friends and, and family and whatever, and they're all there. And some of them are crying. Some of them are praying. Some of them are, you know, just in, in the days. They don't know what's going on, but they're there because they're curious. And so as a result, we pushed our, our way through the crowd and went to the room where this 21-year-old girl was at. And this is what happened to me physically. As we opened the door, the doorknob was hot, hot. I mean, uh, almost to a point that it would burn your skin. I, we opened the door, we turned the doorknob, opened the door and walked in. And all of a sudden, everything has changed. Okay, the girl is there and she's not screaming. She's just laying there and she's just like looking like she's dead. Um, and then all of a sudden she starts breathing again. And then she stops and then she starts breathing again. Uh, immediately, uh, Bishop Griffith, um, he you know, examined the girl and to make sure that, you know, this was actually happening. Now, keep in mind, this is before we had the process, okay? Okay, so this was just a, just a call. This was a cold call, if you right. will. They called us yeah. and we went out. So, okay, I just want to, you know, keep that, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so so Bishop Griffith is, is examining the girl to make sure that, you know, that everything is working and everything is all right. But just on her appearance alone, her skin was very dark, almost, uh, I think her nationality was Mexican, and, and but it, she didn't have an olive skin, though. She had more of a purple, a purple-gray skin, and it was cold to the touch. And that's what happened. And then when I went, I, I was two feet from her, and she opened her eyes. And when she opened her eyes, there were no eyeballs. And that's what happened. I felt it immediately. I, are we ready for this? Wait, now, hold on. When you say no eyeballs, you mean the sockets were empty or they were all white or they were black? They were empty. They appeared to be emptied. Wow. So she opened okay. her eyes and there were no eyeballs. At that point, that's when it happened. I felt the physical chill going down my, my, my spine and realized that I just defecated in my pants. Whoa. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm being totally truthful here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ever you wanted to know what you know what my experience, my first experience was? Well, this was it, okay. Um, and then when she turned her head, it was almost like a robotic, you know. It wasn't a, 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 a sweep as turning her head, but she like turned it like in like like a robot, you know, like in sections, mm -hmm. like you know, yeah. time if you could visualize that. And uh, and just she just happens to face her face. I mean, facing me. And she's looking right at me with no eyes. All I see are black sockets, okay? And I'm like, uh, uh, quite frankly, I'm freaking out, okay? Um, I, I really thought I was prepared to see something because, you know, deep down, and I think maybe um, 
Seat down inside, personally, I, I was very skeptical uh, in regard to seeing anything this drastic, you know. But talk about, holy cow, you talk about something that's shocking. Okay, at that point, um, Father Griffin uh, put his, um, his, his stall, his purple stall, placed it on her head, and we started praying. And so I would, um, in the ritual, there's a... Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the the exorcist would read the passage, and then the, there would be a response. The respondent would also read, and um, and so I would read the responses. Okay, um, you know, this is a this happened about thirty eight years ago, almost almost forty years ago. And you know what? I'm telling you the story, and I'm have I have goose pimples. <laughs> I mean, because it's like I'm remembering a lot of this detail. Yeah, stuff. it sounds crazy. You got, got I got goose pimples. Okay, so so let so let me tell you what happened. Okay, at this point, um, we started praying and we prayed, and um, then she was up, and uh, at that point, Bishop Griffin suggested that we tie her. We literally tie her down, and uh, I said, okay, that's fine. So we uh, we were able to get some. Uh, I think it was linen, and we tied we tied her down. Was she violent at any point during this process? She she became violent at first. She was just laying there, and I think maybe out of curiosity, and then the demon just turned its head, uh, just to show off that there were no eyeballs in the eye sockets, and uh, and knowing that the demonic, knowing I believe, knowing that I would probably crap in my pants at that sure. point, and he wanted that effect to happen. Sure. I, I really respect you admitting that, by the way, because I for sure would have crapped my pants probably a couple minutes before you did. So I respect you admitting that. Uh, and like I said, it was almost 40 years ago. So, I, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm an old guy now, and, and I can tell you these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the first two hours, okay, of praying, and this is repetitious prayers, okay, um, she uh, became very violent, and uh, so we had to tie her down. And then about two hours uh, then, at that point, um, we decided to take a break, and she was like, calm down. We had her tied, I mean, really tied to the bed. I mean, we had her tied from the chest and from her feet. So we had like two linens, mm -hmm. uh, sheets. And uh, the room was with, uh, we had four people in the room, and uh, the first two hours when we decided to take a break, um, Bishop Griffith looked at me and said, um, I think you need to change your pants. <laughs> And he whispered to me, you know, he didn't want anybody to hear that. He's like, I think, you you know, you need to go to the, you know, and uh, change your pants. I said, um, I was beyond embarrassed at that point because, you know, I really, really thought I was, I could handle that at least, the, at least the initial uh, shock anyway. Um, the three or four people that were in the room, at, we turned around and they were gone. I mean, they weren't even in the room anymore. And so we walked out uh, and we closed the door. And I went to the bathroom and I cleaned up. And then um, about a half an hour later, I came back. And Bishop Griffith is in the room and he's praying. And I walked in the room and um, I looked around and those three or four people were still standing there. They came back into the room. And it's interesting. These people, they were like, um, you could see them, but they had no really recognizable features. Um, it's like they were just standing there and with no expression, you know, and if I had to like try to identify them in a, a lineup or, or whatever, it would be impossible because the features just seem to, to, to blend into the background. That's so weird. Anyway, 
yeah, very strange. So I continued to um, I just went up again, and then responses again, and then uh, I read the responses, and then um, Bishop Griffith continued. Um, at that point, um, she was getting uh, very vocal, and then that scream happened again. And then uh, at that point, uh, Bishop Griffith, he was, I'm guessing he was probably in his early 60s. Uh, Bishop Griffith uh, said, you know, it's time that we um, we stop right now and just uh, go outside for a while. I said, okay, fine. We turned around and those three or four people were gone. They weren't in the room again. I mean, like, where the heck did they go? So we opened the door, you know, and the uh, the people who were outside and they were family members, um, they wanted to know, you know, is it over? And I said, no, it's not over. You know, I think we've just really begun. I mean, we're already like six hours into this, oh, okay? Yeah, yeah. And so, and I'm exhausted, physically exhausted. I know Bishop Griffith is too. And, uh, and of course, you know, um, what happened was um, I asked the, uh, I, I guess it was the sister. It could have been the mother. It was, like I said, it was 40 years ago. Uh, one of the relatives, I, I asked the, I asked them who were the three or four people that were in the room, and then we turn around, they're gone. And this was really chilling when, when the relative said to me, um, he said, "Father, nobody went into the room with you, and there was nobody in the room, and uh, even for the very beginning, um, you know, when we went in, there were th three or four people standing in the room. There, were, there was nobody there. They're yeah. telling us that that they don't know anyone being in the room." Or leaving the room for that matter. Did Father Griffin see them? Yeah, Father Griffin saw them too, and 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 so you know, and so and and you know, he just said, he went like this. He, well, you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm putting I'm putting my index finger up to my lips, and this is the gesture he said to me. He said, "Leave it alone. Just, you know, let's just continue." Okay, so we went into the room. Okay. And we both looked around to see if those people were around. And we didn't, we didn't see anybody. There's nobody in the room. And we closed the door. This is an old hotel. And, and the doors, you know, for the bedrooms are really heavy. And you got to turn the doorknob. Okay, so you would hear the door if it opens and closes. So there was nobody in the room. So we continue our prayers. Um, Bishop Griffith anointed um, and uh, placed some blessed salt uh, in the mouth of the victim. As a result, um, we continued the prayers. Um, holy water was, uh, he would splash holy water on, on me before we started, and I'd do it for him, and then we went and began the ritual again. Um, I'd say maybe an hour later, she started to actually come around, and um, we were actually able to get a name of a demon that was in her. And the name is very important because the name is uh, is basically um, represents the um, uh, what is actually being manifested in terms of the personality of the person. Okay, so the name is very important. And then you can direct the name, you talk to the name, and then now it becomes personal. So then the request to get out becomes personal because now you have a name. And then there's a tremendous power there. At that point... I had to. I mean, I just had to. I had to look over my shoulder. The four people were still standing there. They just appeared. They were just standing there. Did you say three or four people? Let me say a small group. Three or four people. Okay. Because when you said four people, I thought maybe they added another one. And I, I thought maybe they were multiplying. 
no, no, no. That would have freaked me out too. But yeah, no, yeah, I, no kidding. Point, I looked over my shoulder and I saw them. They were standing right there. They're like ten feet away from from where we are standing. And I went to uh, I, I tapped a Bishop Griffith on the uh, on the arm and, and on his elbow and I said, you know, they're back. And Bishop Griffith looked over, and he said, "Let's continue." Undaunted. He's like so cool. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> He, he he kind of reminded me of like uh, Clint Eastwood. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's like so cool. with no name, yeah. And, and, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why he was my mentor because I admired him so much, uh, as well as Bishop Voorhees. Um, but Bishop Griffith was he was a <laughs> he was incredible. The girl uh, came back to us, and uh, her color came back. And I tell people this. And this is true, whether you believe it or not, this is absolutely true. When a person is actually freed from the possession of a demon, they become um, this aroma starts filling the room. And it's and I, I have to compare it to roses, even though it's not roses, but it smells so sweet. And when the person comes back, okay, and then they're themselves again, this aroma just fills the room. And it's, it's a sweet, sweet smell. And it's so funny because that has happened in every exorcism I was ever involved in. The the, uh, the scent always comes back. And it's like, I think it's the Holy Spirit just filling the room. I don't know. But um, at that point, um, my belief system in this at that time, back in the, um, the late 70s, expanded, increased as I kept seeing these things happen and from case to case to case to case. Um, the sad part is uh, the girl that we were um, helping and, and, and the girl that we were being successful in, in, in the ritual of exorcism to get the demon out, she passed away about four years later and it was through a drug overdose. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with her four-year prior experience. I'm sure there was a demonic oppression coming back or, or something going on in her life in those four years, but she passed away. So, uh, and we heard about that afterwards. That was kind of that was kind of sad. sad. So that was your first experience right out of the box, right out of the gate. I mean, oh yes, and it, and believe me, I'm telling you, I, I wish I could tell you that I I came out like you know smelling like roses, but that's not. No, that would be no, the definitely truth. not. <laughs> that would not be no, the truth. If I, heard no. the, if I heard the story correctly, I, I no, to, definitely not. I, I no, I have to, I have a whole lot of stories. The latest one that I had put me in the hospital for thirty days. I was in critical condition. I had uh, three procedures done. And um, what it was, it was an exorcism that was done. Uh, and uh, let's see how many years ago. Six this years is, ago? This maybe. is before your retirement. Yeah, just before my retirement. About six years is ago. This what is this the story that retired you? Well, maybe. So getting your first and your last story? I, I say that. But I, it's not really my last story because you don't really retire from this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, it's not really a job. Reason being, it's a calling. Okay. And in my belief system, it's a divine calling. So you never retire from this job. Um, I don't go out as much as I used to, not because I'm scared. But because I'm old, <laughs> I'm an old man. Right. <laughs> Putting that aside, okay. Six years ago, 
was a exorcism that I that I had my team there. I have a team of eight people. These are investigators. I had a couple of people that were there, um, and I had um, a nun who was the um, who was the mother superior of uh, of an order of nuns. She was there for uh, spiritual support. I was so I was there. I'm there performing the exorcism. Um, several hours later, um, something happened. Uh, I felt this what felt like a two by four. It just came like an invisible two by four. It hit me on the side, my left side of my body. In fact, it was so strong that it it literally took the breath from me. And the people that were in the room, my my team were looking at me and saying, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" Because it I, it like hit me such strong, three strong whacks on my left side, so much so it like literally almost took me off my feet. I had my prayer book in front of me. And I was in the middle of the ritual, and I could barely breathe, but I continued the ritual. I continued this, and I didn't have any real support system there. Okay, in other words, I didn't have anyone who could step in for me in the event I couldn't couldn't finish. And so um, I finished it. I I mean, I actually finished it, and I can't believe it. And then as I went to the car, um, and they, uh, they drove me home, and I was like, could hardly breathe, and uh, I called my my family physician, and I said, you know, um, Doctor Brenner, I have a real problem here, and, and you need to uh, um, you need to come over right away. And so he came over and he examined me, and he said, you know what, I I don't know what this is, but uh, I you know um, it's probably maybe asthma. I, no, it can't be asthma because I never had asthma. I don't have any his, ha, respiratory problems, history of respiratory problems. I, I just don't have that. Um, so he, uh, you know, he was puzzled. He gave me some medication and told me to relax. And and uh, and then he, uh, then at that point, uh, he told me to also go to uh, the San Antonio uh, Medical Center in Upland, California, to go and uh, and have an X-ray. Done. So I had a chest X-ray done, and uh, then the following day he calls me and he says, "You need to get to the hospital immediately." And I'm saying, "Okay, I'm there." <laughs> jumped, yeah, I, I jumped in the car and I raced to the hospital. Yeah, no um, and they took me in immediately, and then they had to do a procedure and they determined uh, and gave me a CAT scan and they uh, determined that I had a, a two-liter sack of blood that was wrapped around my heart on my left side, on my left side expanding out. And the reason I couldn't breathe very well is because my lungs were literally being pressed uh, and, and it was just basically squeezing out uh, in, the, in, the, in the position it was in. Now, when you say sack around your left side, is this because you were, have internal bleeding or this is a membrane, some kind of created? Not, no, there was no blood. It was a sack of blood that came out of nowhere. And it was because of the three strikes I had on my left side while I was doing the the actual exorcism, and that's the only you know thing I could come up with because that's the exact spot where the two set two sacks, well I mean two liters sack of blood was wrapped, right there by my heart, and so uh, they uh, actually operated on me. This is interesting. I had three operations first of all, because they had to do a lot of things that were also related to what happened. And to this day, all the doctors, um, I had this, the, the CDC involved. Um, they, uh, 
that they did not have a clue as to how I, I succumbed to this condition. And so they put me on like a, after these operations, they put me on an isolation and uh, gave me about 60 types of different types of medications, uh, you know, trial and error to see, you know, how I would respond to this, how I would respond to that. And, and this is how, you know, they couldn't come up with a diagnosis. And, uh, and as I said, the CDC got involved and he could, he had no idea what was going on, but, uh, the operation, uh, in terms of draining the sack, that was interesting. The first operation, uh, they performed it while I was in that donut, that big donut, which is the, uh, the, the mm -hmm. CAT scan, they could actually see the inside of, of your chest. And so as they're doing it, I'm, I'm actually seeing them drain. I, I'm semi conscious and I'm watching this, you know, which I thought was really fascinating. Right. <laughs> All right. They showed this big jar and it was two liters. And they said, this is what we just took out of you. And I'm going, whoa, it was in a sack. It was not internal bleeding. It was in a sack. That was the mystery. So then um, after that, okay, then uh, I went to the recovery and then they had to do another one. They had to wash my uh, they called it, and I never heard of this term before. But they had to wash my lungs. I don't know what that, what that you know in, in, entails. But they, they actually did it. They did another procedure. So I'm in the hospital for 30 days, and then they finally released me. Of course, I had to take all this medication, um, and um, and as I'm taking the medication, those last two weeks in the hospital. The doctor and nurse would be standing there next to me in this, and they'd be watching me, making sure that I take each and every pill, mm -hmm. okay? so and, and it just so happens I'm one of those guys that has a hard time swallowing a pill, <laughs> but I had to learn fast. So I started swallowing pills, and, and as a result, um, um, I had to sign something saying that I had to continue the, um, the prescription uh, procedure, you know, and uh, for at least six months after that, I said, fine. Um, the outcome of that was um, uh, side effects. Anytime you put a, a drug in your body, it's a foreign substance. And, and what happens is there's a, always a, some kind of side effect that goes on. Um, can you imagine having 60 different types of medications that you're taking on a daily basis? Can you imagine what the side effects would be? And uh, especially when they interact to, to each other. Um, the, the final, uh, well, let me finalize this and summarize this by saying, um, I lost part of my hearing. I have, um, of course, the ringing in the ears are constant. Um, but uh, I've learned to to live with it over the years. Um, but the, so I have the ringing, the pressure in the ears. Now I, I'm having a problem. I'm not not really able to walk too good. But um, I'm working on that. So I'm, I'm sure I'm going to recover from that. So that and so all of those disorders happened from this this the last exorcism you did. Before. Yeah, and wow, none of that was documented. <laughs> I mean, this is a San Antonio hospital in Upland, California. I mean, it's actually documented. What would you do? You know who Vincent Price is? Of course. Okay, he's okay. Well, yeah, I, I you know your age. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, Vincent Price, last years of his life, he was being followed by green eyes. Wherever he went, he saw green eyes. It scared the crap out of him. He didn't know how or what it was, but he knew it was very, very dark. And he died. And in his memoirs, he even wrote something about green eyes that were following him. 
right up to the time of his death. I think that in order to really have a good insight, and if you're going to write about something, I think that the better side is to experience what you're about to write. And then, of course, you can use your creative imagination at that point. But based on your experience, okay, I think a lot of like a, like, like a, what's his name? Uh, um, Steven um, Spielberg. Um, I'm sure he's had a lot of paranormal uh, things that have taken place in his life. And as a result, he's come up with so many interesting, uh, detailed ideas. And you wonder how the heck, you know, can these guys come up? Um, even the, the famous writer, um, um, Stephen King, you know, he must have had some real supernatural, perhaps dark and even demonic issues happen in his life for him to come up with his storylines that scare the crap out of you when you read his stuff or view movies in, in, in such a manner. And I think it's because maybe they've had a glimpse of the dark side where they're able to use their imagination more so because it's been, uh, it's been enhanced by reality. As I said, reality is more scary than any horror movie you can ever see. Well, I think that that is, if you've been touched by the darkness and you need to help with that, Archbishop Ron File Enright is the guy to talk to, the Order of Exorcists. How can people get in touch with you if they feel like that they are suffering from, from a demonic possession? I have seven forums on Facebook. All you have to do is just look up my name. And uh, they'll come up, and then you'll see other links, and they'll come up. I think I have one. It's called um, The Battle Continues, um, uh, Good versus Evil with uh, Ron, File, Enright, and Friends. And I think that's one of my groups. I have a lot of groups that on, on Facebook, which I'm constantly on, uh, just answering and giving my input. And the people who are in the forums are also clergy who have been in my organization, who have been trained, and who are exorcists. And I have a lot of investigators who are also in my forums on Facebook. So that's probably the best way. My website, www.orderofexorcist.com, is outdated. Um, that's only for information only. Um, the I have a referral directory that's on there. Aren't you on, you're on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on everything. Okay. Um, all right. I think there's there's links on your website, so I'll make it easy. I'll I'll have links on the on my webpage for all of your different sites and your forums and everything. Uh, I mean, it's a, just a wealth of information. I mean, inc incredible stories. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. So, Archbishop, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like the show, you got to subscribe so you will not miss an episode. It's easy to do. We're on all the major podcasting platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you're not currently using any of those platforms, you can find us on my webpage. FascinatingNouns.com is where you go if you want to subscribe, if you want to check out this episode, additional links, previous episodes, or follow the show on social media. If you scroll to the bottom, you'll find links to the show's Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, and Twitter feeds all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.